Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, You are our living hope. You are the one to whom we have no choice but to run. There is no other one living God. You're it. Lord God, we place all of our trust, all of our hope in You because You're not a hope of virtuality. You are a hope indeed. And there is substance to our hope. Therefore, we have our place our faith in You. Please bless as we share Your Word here today. Lord, bless this time. Move our hearts. Change us, Lord God. You're going to answer big questions today. Questions like, why am I here? What purpose do I have? Are people good by them, in and of themselves? How about, what do I need to be saved? Or, how can I hear you say, good and faithful servant? You answer these questions. You're a living hope. Bless this time. In your blessed name we pray. Amen. Good morning, First Colony. It is indeed a pleasure and an honor to be asked to break the word, share the word with you today. Particularly regrouped with my good buddy Ryan, having my son playing the drums brings a father great joy. You know, something else gives a, fa a father joy, and that's reading his words. So let's read the Heavenly Father's words today. We are going to be sharing from Ephesians chapter 2, continuing on in the series that you've been doing, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading in the King James Version. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But, oh, what an important word, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's a lot packed in that 
that passage. And it's a familiar passage. It's not one that we, you know, an obscure one. Very familiar words with a lot of deep meaning. Perspective. Perspective. As you've been going through Ephesians, your discussants have been reminding you of two distinct perspectives. From the believer's perspective, Brother Pavin reminded you of the spiritual blessings that a believer enjoys. Like being chosen by the Father before He started creating anything. Loving us before we're even born. Despite our rejection of Him by the first Adam, feeling pleasure to gather us back to Him. And by His prudence and wisdom, creating a gracious passage where our sins could be forgiven and where we could be seen as holy and blameless. Then adopting us as His very family, giving us full rights to a rich inheritance. Amazing stuff. That's a lot. Perspective. But from our Heavenly Father's perspective, how could you not be touched by Brother Tillery's beautiful image of God cradling you personally? Cradling you. Gazing upon you with bountiful love. Think about that. Safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Perspective. We get involved with the issues of the world and we lose sight. As John told you, sometimes we desperately, what we desperately need is some altitude. We pilots know how different the world looks from a few thousand feet. Your very neighborhood looks completely different than you thought when you view it from above. Why is having a correct perspective or a correct mental view so important? Well, it's the heart. No, 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 not that heart. That's, that's, that's your literal heart, your physical heart. But the, the, the heart we're talking about is the seat of your will, where your conscience resides, where your brain's processing of information can be written into choices and decisions, where emotions can roil, and if you allow them to, carry you astray. You know, it was Martin Luther who said the following, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. So, beloved, what is your heart clinging to this today? If your mind wanders off from here, where does it go? Paul is working hard in his communication to the church at Ephesus to shed light upon their hearts. And beloved, your Father who gazes lovingly into your eyes is trying to shed light into your hearts today. Chapter 1, verse 18 said, With the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. Hmm. 
Some of you may think you are all good, saved by grace, through faith, not of works. Check, check, check. Got it. Well, so did the church at Ephesus. In your Revelation study, you saw different, though, didn't you? Church at Ephesus had labored, working to root out evil, lying disciples, patiently faced challenge after challenge, and somewhere in the battle, they lost something, something critical. They lost their first love. Ooh. They're doctrinally, they were doctrinally strong, but what had they lost? Now, there's some debate about whether this is, uh, uh, this refers to a passion for their heavenly father or a love for each other. I'm compelled more by the uh, argument for it being brotherly love. Why? Well, in chapter 1, Paul commends them in verse 15 for their love of the saints. Remember, if you, have a, if you lost your first love, it had to be there to begin with. So they had love for the saints. They're being commended for it by Paul. You know, amidst conflict and challenge, things can be lost. Secondly, Paul exhorts them repeatedly about being diligent to continue loving one another in Ephesians 4 and 5, which you'll cover soon. The last reason I think I hold to this view is that losing brotherly love is what pulls churches apart. Minor offenses or slights, she said this, he criticized that, etc. Pulling at the fabric of solidarity and love, the body erodes from within. Strife leads people to regress into their private fortress, leaving all others to their own devices. We see this in the end times. Matthew 24, verse 9, states the following. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated by all of the nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Difficult times can cool our love for others. But when you see your brother or sister in Christ as a beloved, immediate family member, you won't betray them. You die for them. That's Jesus-level love. Brotherly love is the lifeblood of every group of believers. Every group needs to be mindful of it, cultivate it, foster it, promote it. In our passage today, Paul starts by giving the reader a comprehensive look, a perspective, at where all humans are before they accept the gift of salvation from God. To be blunt, Paul reminds us we were dead. Flat dead. Essentially living corpuses. What is the nature of the world? Well, trespasses and sin controlled by whom? Why, the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? What is this, what is this referring to? 
He has many names in Scripture. Satan, the serpent, the devil, liar and father of lies, angel of the abyss, Abaddon, Apollyon, Beelzebul, Belial, the great dragon, ruler or little g, God of this world, the tempter, your enemy, the evil one, the unclean spirit, the torrent of ungodliness. I love that one. The torrent of ungodliness. That's in Psalm 18.4. Your adversary, the accuser of the brethren. Satan by any other name. That's who's controlling the world. Why on earth would any of us expect sound reason or sane action from the children of disobedience who are controlled by the spirit, Satan? This is, the, this is most people around us. You look dismayed at people in government or the rich and famous, and you say, what are they doing? Well, they're obeying their master. That's what they're doing. Why would we expect anything else? They don't realize it or understand it. Why? Well, what you're seeing in this country is expected and predictable based on their position outside of Christ. They are children of wrath, seeking only to satisfy the desires of their flesh and the desires of their mind. When you see pictures like these actors, do you get excited or envious? You do realize that since this picture was taken, it was revealed that one actor was a pedophile. One is an abusive boss. One is a recalcitrant drunk. And that's just the offenses that have been made public. Are unsafe people pretty good, as many claim themselves to be that they are? Well, Job's friend, Job's friend, Eliphaz, phrased it this way in Job fifteen sixteen: How much more abominable and filthy is man with drinketh iniquity like water? That's what the world does. It drinks iniquity like water, and they are thirsty. That's how these people are. I want you to give a, a, a more appropriate view of this group, though. This is what this group actually is. Living corpses. Living in what Colossians 1.13 calls the domain of darkness. Your heart should feel sympathy for their horrible fallen state, which we all shared with them. Every last one of us, Cornelius. This is the reality of our existence before salvation. Being saved from a fallen state should generate such profound gratitude within us. Just imagine what we were saved from, that we're motivated to give as many people a possible, possible chance to cross over. How could we not? How can we look at these folks and just watch them pass on by? I mean, think about it. Look at them. That's what they are. Our hearts should weep. How do we continue to be willing to watch this? 
it would be like a patient coming into my office with a problem with their heart or lungs or blood vessels or something. And I say to them, well, I know how to fix this. I have a cure for it. And I can prolong your livelihood. But you know what? I don't want to tell you what to do. You know, really, you know, if you want to avoid any chance for pain or complication, why don't you just live with it? You know, I don't want to tell you what to do. I respect your independence. What kind of doctor would I be? I'd tell you what kind of doctor I would be. A bad doctor. I would be one who would be liable for reducing their livelihood. That's not what you do. If you know the solution, your heart weeps for the person with the problem and you give them the solution. How could you not? I want to respect their privacy. They're all, they think a different way. They're dying. They're a living corpse. Come on. They may think funny of me if I bring up religion. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. We need to feel empathy. Being unwilling to evangelize those around you is cruelty. And it's a cruelty we have grown too comfortable with. We have what, why we have gained this comfort with inactivity is something we need to consider. Remember Satan's techniques. He divides and conquers. He's working to split your marriages, split kids from their parents, split one church family from another church family. He didn't attack Adam and Eve together. He went after one at a time. He's a sniper laying in wait. Anything he can do to isolate you and get your undivided attention, he does. And then he worms his evil influence into you. That's the reality of the prince of the power of the air. We need perspective. What is the nature of our current society? Well, want to get together on Tuesday? No, I got to do this on Tuesday. Well, how about Wednesday? Nah, so-and-so has a practice on Wednesday. Well, what about this day? What about... We can't schedule anything these days. It's not even possible. Why? Why is it that we can't schedule anything? Our affluence has created a desire for ever-increasing affluence. Some of us cannot leave our work at work. We work all day and think about work all evening. But my job expects that. Or, I'm the boss and everybody is relying on me. Mm, really now. These are the lies we tell ourselves. I know this because I've fought them myself. Remember Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. If your mind can't leave work or that current project 
then that is your functional Savior. I am struck how the translators chose to use a particular word, root word, in multiple places in Scripture. The word is filth, or filthy, or filthiness. And there's a, it's used prominently in discussing church leaders, you know, elders, deacons, bishops, you, me, and our need to be free of greed. You know, it's seen in 1 Timothy 3, verses 3 or 8, Titus 1, 7 or 11, and the one I'm about to read, 1 Peter 5, 2, which states, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not by filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Filthy lucre, ungotten gain, greed. We accumulate so much that we have to run ever increasingly fast to service the mess that we created. Prior to us purchasing all that stuff, it just keeps going. What do they say about a boat? A boat is a hole in the water into which you throw your money. We love boats. Boats are fun. I like boats. If you got a boat, you want to invite me out? Hey, more power to it. But we know what the situation is. Our stuff creates a burden. Enough. Consider what, that, what the influence of all this is and what it's driving us to. Rise above it. Gain perspective. Our society has more free time generated by our incomes that we fill with non-interactive activities and ever-increasing stuff. These activities, often in and of themselves, are not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. But to what end? Our children and young adults have been so acclimated to requiring near-constant screen time and stimulation, they can't get away from it. What is this? What's this? Cell phone. Powerful computer. Many times more computing power than the mainframes I used to use at a university. It's an amazing thing. Is there anything wrong with this device? My Bible's on it. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But let's see how Genesis put it in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field. Subtle. Isn't that an interesting term? And he made this into a crack cocaine pipe. That's what this is. This is a crack cocaine pipe. And this crack cocaine pipe is being used to divert your mind, stimulate your flesh, distract you from the people around you, and hide your insecurities. Remember Ephesians 2, 3. We all had conversations, quote, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We can't get enough of it. Oh, my dear crack cocaine pipe. Just look at restaurants. Or how about this? You get up to light. Light turns green. Do you go anywhere? 
Nope. Everyone's getting a little hit off their crack cocaine pipe. <laughs> so you sit there and you rate. Let's go to a restaurant. Table of four, sitting there. Are they talking with each other, sharing things, you know, having a ha ha ha? Nope. They all get a little hit off their crack cocaine pipe. Why? It's, it's my precious. They're like little golems. And they have their precious with them. Got my crack cocaine pipe. What's he doing? He's dividing us. And this is the tool he chooses to use. He'll use whatever. It's not this. There's nothing wrong with this. It's a, it's a fabulous computer. But he's going to use whatever he can use to divide us all. Gain perspective. See what he's doing. You know his mechanisms. We aren't moved by the children of wrath around us because we don't see them. And at some level, we're disgusted at their lost ways. Your loving father, though, sees them differently. He sees them as the prodigal. Lost from the fold. What did, what did Benoit read? That one sheep gone away from the 99. That's what he sees. Is there a shepherd here he can use to seek them out? That's me. That's you, a royal priesthood. The only true God is righteous and loving. Verse 4 says, His great love. He cares for His creation and provides for them. And please notice how His grace is expressed upon the fallen. Verse 6, He raises us up. How? Together. Yeah, and how... Will we sit in the heavenly places together? Salvation in Christ and the life in the body of Christ is a group activity. Not, I go to church and, or watch the service on Sunday and then don't think about it for a week. Mm -mm. Nope. Not, I'm distracted the whole time I'm with the believers by my Satan-influenced cares of the world. No. What value are any of the things we get occupied with compared to the massive riches awaiting us eternally? Have you considered that? Jesus has created and paved a path for us. Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Beloved, if you don't have personal relationship with Jesus. You've got to be crazy. You're a living corpse. And He is willing, He's a loving Father, looking into your eyes, saying, come on, I'm offering you a free gift. All you have to do is admit, I'm a living corpse, I'm dead, I'm dead in my sins, and I'll accept your free gift. If anyone's listening to this, you know, we're over the internet land. Who knows who's listening? If you're listening to this, accept the gift. Come on. It's logical. And it's available. Consider that his divine assistance to us is through no merit of our own. We can't brag. Your only act is having faith. But that faith... It's not some flimsy thing. No, no. 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. It has substance. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have no basis for feeling any smug arrogance. No. Not about our salvation or our appreciation of, of doctrine or our biblical acumen or the skill at exegesis as none of it is of us. Anything good that we have, it came from Him. How did Isaiah put it? 64, chapter 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. That only changes when you're born again. Right, Nicodemus? Yes, indeed. You have to be born again. And think about what we are created for. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before before ordained that we should walk in them. So let's, let's get this straight. Before you were born, the Creator knew the gifts and talents that He would indwell you with and did so so that you would be able to perform specific tasks for Him. I'm going to say that again. Before you were born, the Creator knew the gifts and talents that He was going to give to you and indwell you with, and He did so that you would be able to perform specific tasks him. These tasks are ordained, so not just any old spiritual tasks, but specific ones matched to your particular anointing and giftedness. Everyone, every woman, man, child, teenager, you name it. When we lived in Iowa, my wife Sherilyn happened upon a beautiful lime tree in the garden center. And they had carefully tended to this thing. It, was a, it had great light. It was humid. You know, they kept it perfect. It was beautiful looking lime tree. And it reminded her of Texas and the ease with which we grow lime trees or fruit trees here. And so she wanted it. This is Iowa, remember. Okay. And our home is not like that garden center with perfect humidity and all this sort of thing. So she got grow lights and soil moisture meters and correctly timed fertilizer and she kept it indoors until the freezing temperatures had left. But over the next and our two final years there in Iowa, the tree produced one solitary lime <laughs> for all that effort. Effort doesn't always equate without come. We can expend much effort and labor even in religiously sounding stuff. But if it isn't initiated by, anointed by, infused with, and used by our Heavenly Father, we labor in vain. How many church communities are very busy, fruitless trees? We don't want to be that. The world is even worse. <laughs> How about that? 
even when it's trying to do good, they are lost on how to do it. Anything good that comes out of us is not from our prior nature, which produced only filth. Good things result from us being a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This here in Ephesians is a glorious portion of the message. It's glorious. By being made new and receiving a new heart, we can finally actualize into what Jesus created us to do. Gold medalist and missionary Eric Liddell said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Why? The running provided a platform from which he could glorify God's holy name. When you are doing the good works that you were designed to do before you were created, it feels good. And you bring glory to your creator. Beloved, we are in this together. Branches of the same tree, working to the same end. We are to be integrally involved with each other all week. Not jumping from activity to activity, buried on our phones or computer. So, what kind of fruit, if any, are you producing? Are you a microscopic lime like this one? How much juice do you produce? Now, Brother Kachikas exhorted you to participate in small groups and Bible study discipleship groups here. Did you participate? Did you participate enthusiastically, opening your homes for sessions or bringing a snack or making yourself vulnerable to the group, sharing real struggles in your life? Or was it a sterile, somewhat cool affair? If someone does share their gritty struggle, were you repulsed? Or did you encircle them with your verbal and or literal arms? Do people outside of your immediate family or close friends play prominently in your daily prayers? Do you even have daily prayers? Do you have any sympathy for the living corpses walking all around you? Now, I don't ask these questions because there's no love here. Because my family has experienced love in this very congregation. So it's not that I'm saying there's an absence of love here. There's not. In fact, there's some great love here. And I'm going to embarrass someone right now, and I don't care. And I'm running a little bit late, and I don't care. I'm 3,000 miles away from Houston. 3,000 miles away. And it's blazing hot deep in May. And my air conditioner dies. And my wife tries to get me, oh, the air conditioner died in the house. The house is going to 100 degrees, blah, blah, blah. I'm in the jungle. I got no cell reception. So when we finally get to a place where there's cell reception, my phone blows up. Bam! I mean, there's message after message after message. I'm like, oh, what's going on? So I text her. I can't do anything from here. I can't find the person to do it from, from here. I'm deep in the jungles of Peru. I said, call Mike Levy. 
because he'll know a reputable, honorable HVAC place to take care of our air conditioning. So she did that. And then I'm, you know, I'm out of cell phone reception, so I don't know what's going on. So she calls him. You know he did? Did he give her a reputable referral? Because they, he was in that business, so I knew he'd know who was honorable, who wasn't. No, he didn't. He went over personally. He's not young. And he fixed it himself. 90 degree heat. That's love. That's love. I appreciate it. This is the kind of love all of you need to be showing to each other. All of you, every day, all through the week, week after week, month after month. Why? Because that's what your father did. That's what Jesus did. That's why he would die for you. And you have been anointed and ordained for the beginning of time with unique talents and abilities to glorify his name. But we don't do it often. All right. I'm simply exhorting everyone here to bump it up dramatically into a bonfire. We were created to bear much fruit. Now, out on Interstate 316, that's another message that I have. Out on Interstate 316, at 1 John 316, it states the following. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is no frilly, just love them. We need to love everybody. You Christians don't love everybody. Yes, we're to love people. But you have to bring the truth with you. That's what the scripture actually says. In deed and in truth. The truth sheds the light on the experience. We all need to be trees burdened with fruit, producing a pleasing aroma for our heavenly caretaker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, sometimes we struggle to love. Sometimes we get burdened with the difficulties of life. And life is a struggle. It's true. Things break. Financial challenges happen. In, uh, illness occurs. We need surgery. We screw up. We mess something up at work. Coworkers say something or do something nasty to us. These things can all be exceedingly distracting to us. But we know that you specially gifted us and t- gave us talents. We have no reason to feel negative about ourselves or feel that we're no good or can't give it because you created us. We're your workmanship. We are uniquely talented to do exactly what you designed us to do. We only have to be 
mindful of that, aware of that, look for the opportunity, and then do what we have the capability to do. It's very straightforward. We want to be fruit-filled trees. Lord God, work through us. You can bring out the fruit. We pray that we are profoundly changed by your word today and that our behavior changes as a result of it. In your blessed name we pray. Amen.